0: Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 15 as we continue our trek through what has proven to be an incredible book. And I pray that it has been for you. I know that I have been encouraged, I have been challenged by this book in ways that I cannot even begin to express. As we enter into chapter 15, we recognize that there are two chapters remaining. And we are soon going to bring this book to a close. And it is my heart's desire that you will be found faithful and obedient in implementing what we have learned. Today we continue with the question of Christian liberty. We've spent two weeks already moving to this point. What is Christian liberty? What are we supposed to do with Christian liberty? And there's been this overall question that has followed through, and Paul is now going to address it. The question is, what is the purpose of Christian liberty? What is it for? What is it supposed to do? And I'm going to ask the question, which is going to become our central idea here in a moment, is why should I restrict my liberty? Why should I restrict my liberty for another person, another believer in the body of Christ? And so we're going to be challenged in that this morning, but as we do so, as as I was working through this passage, my mind kept going back to the modern era in sports. And it doesn't matter if it's a team sport or an individual sport, it is the individual's that usually try to stand out, right? When you look at, especially basketball today, the NBA is terrible at this. Uh, you have a lousy team, but you've got a star athlete. And this star athlete runs his mouth all the time. He's he's talking all the time. He can play, yeah. The whole team suffers for it. In fact, how many teams do you know uh, that have a great running back, but the team is just terrible? The team's not doing anything. What about uh, on the basketball court, as I've already mentioned? You have a star on the basketball court, but the team is at the bottom of the rankings. Reverse that. How often do you find a team of average players at the top of the rankings? This was true in this past Super Bowl. You had a team who should not have been beating the teams that they were beating on their trek to the Super Bowl. And they were full of average players, Aging players, players about to retire, once were great, no longer are that great. But they started to come together as a team. They started to work together as a team. They're a middle-of-the-road team. They should never have beaten some of the teams they beat. And yet they were crowned Super Bowl champions. And they persevered as a team all the way through the blackout, all the way through to victory. How many great stars sat at home and could only watch that game? Because they're on lousy teams. Because it's not about the individual. As a society that prides itself on individual accomplishments, we come to a place where we will find a lasting principle. No organization or organism can function at their best as individuals. And that is especially true of the body of Christ. The idea that I want us to focus on is this. Why should I? Restrict my Christian liberty. Why should I let it go? For two weeks, Paul has been telling us, this is your Christian liberty, you have the right. You have uh, the opportunity to enjoy Christian liberty in abundance. Oh, but by the way, restrict it. But this is your Christian liberty. Live in this. Don't elevate your convictions to theology as we worked through two weeks ago. Recognize your convictions are an aspect of liberty. Your theology is set firm in the Word of God. Oh, but by the way, restrict your convictions. Restrict your liberty to match the convictions of others. This morning we ask this question. Okay, Paul, why? Why Why should I restrict the liberty that is mine as a Christian? And what we're going to find is that there are no standout stars in the body of Christ. And so therefore we must recognize what God is doing in and through us as a body of believers. As we prepare to go in this passage in Romans chapter 15, we have read through it already, so let's go before our Lord and ask His blessing on our time and His Word. Father, we thank You and praise You for the privilege that it is to bow our heads before You. As we continue this trek through Romans chapter 15, we see an amazing picture of what Christian liberty surrendered, voluntarily surrendered, results in. I praise You for Paul's testimony, his example, his willingness to set aside his own Uh, Christian liberties, for the sake of those who struggled. I pray that as Christians we would recognize that we must pay attention to those around about us. That if we want to be unified in giving you glory, there will be those who will willingly surrender, willingly restrict our Christian liberties for the sake of each other. Lord, we love you. Uh, We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the privilege of studying it this morning. The freedom to be able to enjoy Not only our Christian liberties, but those things that are found in your word as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we come before this passage asking the question that has been alluded to the last two weeks. Why? Why do I restrict my Christian liberty? But this needs a clear answer. We have not, it's been alluded to, but it's been pushed off, pushed off, pushed off by Paul. And now we get to the heart of it. Why do we do this? Why are we going to restrict it? And it becomes more than just, should I restrict it? It is, I must surrender my Christian liberty. And Paul's going to give us a very clear answer. But he's going to do so as he reminds us the benefits of surrendering. He's not going to just tell us. He's not going to command us to do it. He's going to remind us of the benefits. He's going to tell us why. What are some of the things that are an outflow of that? So he does so first... In reminding us that liberty is used for edification. Liberty is to be used for the edification of those sitting in front of you, behind you, beside you, or across the aisle from you. Even though there's only like five people over here today. You can, you can balance it out. Everybody who is gone today is over here. So balance it out. Our liberty is to be used for edification. And then we recognize that as we are in the process of using our liberty, in the process of restricting our liberty, we find encouragement and perseverance in the Word of God. And he gives us some prime examples that we're going to look at as we look at encouragement and perseverance. And then we get to the heart of the issue. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God. Well, guess what? The chief end of the restriction of your liberty is for so that you may glorify God. Not as individuals, but that there would be a chorus, a symphony of, of individuals praising God as one, giving God glory unified. And we're going to see that as we close out verses 6 and 7. But let's begin looking at liberty used for edification. And Paul begins with the strong in verses 1 through 3. And he says this, Now we who are strong, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. For each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so Paul begins with the strong in verse 1, and he places himself in that category. Notice what he says. He says, now we who are strong. So Paul says, as you follow my example, I am strong in faith, recognize how I live it out. Now we have to redefine, as we've had to both of the weeks before this, what is strong and what is weak. Paul is not talking about uh, the level of your faith. He's talking about how your faith is lived out. The the description of it. Instead of practicing your full liberty, you're you're refining it. You're, You're restricting it already by your own convictions. That is weak faith. If you are living and enjoying all of your liberties, Paul considers that strong faith. And so it's not the level, it's not as if you're saying, well, I'm just struggling in my faith today. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the weak are those who aren't using their liberties to their fullest. The strong are using their liberties to the fullest. And Paul says, I'm using my liberties. As a Christian, I understand what is allowed and what is not allowed. And so follow me as one who is strong in the faith. But notice what he says. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. There's two aspects to this. First, it's a willful surrendering of his liberties. He's saying, we ought to. But the word ought to is actually a lot stronger than that, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But he's saying, we we must willfully place restrictions on our liberty. This must be something that we just do. To those who are strong, Paul gives instructions. He says that they ought to in the NASB. And usually I appreciate the way the NASB has translated it, but they have done a very poor job with this word. Because it's not ought, it's obligated. This word means you are obligated to restrict your faith. You see, part of your Christian liberty is the obligation to lay it aside. And the word obligated is, uh, as, as we consider this, it is used in the same way as one who owes another money. In fact, it is a legal term. It is a banking term. And Paul says, you use your Christian liberties. Those who are strong in your faith, you come across a a fellow believer who is struggling in their faith, who doesn't recognize that this is a point of Christian liberty, or if they do, they have strong convictions about not doing so, then you are obligated to surrender your Christian liberties in their presence. Just as if you owed them money. So Paul says, do it willfully. But he says, by the way, you're obligated to. You're obligated. Paul is revealing that the strong in faith are to bear the burden of the weakness of the faith of their fellow believers as if it were their own. As if it was their own position. Successful bodies, and what I mean by bodies is fellowships. Successful fellowships do this. Successful organizations do this. Successful teams do this. If an athlete may be incredible in one area, and yet weak in another, and the team, the opposing team begins to assault their weaknesses, what's the smart thing to do? Give them support. Bring in someone who is strong in that area and help support him. You see, you must recognize where your weaknesses are in your Christian liberties, and you must recognize where your strengths are. So the concern here is that the strong in faith pay attention to and come alongside of those who would naturally be seen as unproductive in the body of Christ because of their struggles with certain aspects of their Christian liberty. And so Paul says this, now we ought to, or now we who are strong, I'm going to change it, are obligated to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. If you have a strength and you see a believer who's struggling in a conviction, then you willingly lay aside your Christian liberties to go alongside them and build them up. Strengthen and edify them. To encourage them, to build them up in the Lord. And Paul directs this now in verse 2 as he gives us the goal. The goal is this. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now this means that we are to be people pleasers, right? Uh, No. See, this is one of those verses that is... I've been pulled out of context. We often pull those earlier verses out. Remember, the passages say, do not judge. And we say, well, see, sorry, I can't judge sin. Because God told me not to judge. That's not what Paul is saying, and that's not what the Lord is saying. He's saying, do not judge convictions. Do not judge those issues that are not theology, but are rather personal convictions. Do not judge those, because they may be convicted by the Lord to hold those Christian liberties tightly. But Paul is saying here in the same manner, he is saying uh, not that we become people-pleasers, but that we pay attention to our fellow believer, that we build them up. What Paul is saying is that we consider the other person's spiritual edification. When you are practicing Christian liberty and you're rubbing it in the nose of another believer, is that edifying? No. Remember the illustration I showed last week, or I revealed last week, of this couple who had this wine rack. It is perfectly legitimate, according to Scripture, to drink. The prohibition is that you cannot be drunk. Within here and here is Christian liberties. And yet this family chose to rub it in the nose of a young believer who was just growing in his faith, who had struggled with alcoholism in his family, who was beaten by a drunken father. And they rubbed his nose in it. Is that the action Paul is calling for? No. Paul is saying, pay attention to the needs of your fellow believers. Recognize when they are weak. Recognize when they are struggling with these areas of convictions. And come alongside them. Build them up. Give them spiritual edification. And the goal to laying aside your Christian liberties is to begin building up the one with the greatest needs of help. In the body of Christ, the unity is revealed in a way, rather in the way, that we care for and help along those who are struggling with their liberty. You want to know how healthy the body of Christ is in any location? What is their concern and their compassion for each other? What is their concern and their uh, encouragement of the other believer who's in the same body, who's struggling with uh, whatever it happens to be, whether it's conviction or whether it's sin? Paul gives us an example, one that is an impossible goal. He says this in verse three. He says, For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul uses the perfect example. And he provides the perfect reason that we are to surrender our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. If Christ, the very Son of God, did not seek to please himself, but according to Philippians chapter 2, lowered himself to the level of a bondservant, taking on the flesh of a bondservant, to be made like one of us, lower than the angels, how much more should we lay aside our personal liberty for the sake of each other? Keep your fingers here for just a moment. Look over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. we are at the other end of the chapter that I mentioned earlier. Uh, They're unrelated incidents, but uh, related in the fact that they're in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. In order to do this, I'm going to read verse 45, but then we're going to summarize the context of this. Look at verse 45. It says, "Uh, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says, by the way, your example in laying aside your Christian liberties is not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those who are fellow believers in Jesus Christ. He's not saying lay them aside for unbelievers. He is talking about believers. Lay them aside for fellow believers. But notice the context of this passage. Look back at verse 35. And I'm going to read verse 35, so you get the idea. Verse 35: James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, "Teacher, uh, we want you to do for uh, or we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." That's a, a pretty. Uh, I can imagine Christ's face, like, "Oh yeah, sure, whatever." Uh, no, I don't think so. Christ is like, "You got to be kidding me." So then, in verse 36 or verse 37, he asks him. In th- verse 36: What do you want? Verse thirty seven, they say, We want one of us to sit on your right and one of us to sit on your left in glory. And then they, this is pretty good. We got Jesus alone, just two of us, we're going to have this conversation with Jesus. Well, the disciples overhear the conversation. Are they happy about it? Look down at verse thirty uh verse forty one. Hearing this, the ten became began to feel indignant with James and John. Did they appreciate it? No, because they were like, You shouldn't talk to the master that way, right? I think rather it was an attitude of saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't think of it myself, first. I think this is an attitude of their saying, you beat me to it. I want the right, or I want the left. And Jesus says to them, in verse 42, he calls them all together and he says this. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. Consider our culture today. Are they lording it over you for their position? Yes. If you don't believe me, look at the voting record of Congress. Does it match the will of the people? They're lording it over us. And yet, when we get to Romans chapter 15, Paul says, Are you lording it over them? Paul is reminding us that in the body of Christ, it's different from the world. He's not calling us to change the world. He's not calling us, I mean, we we should through the gospel message of Christ, but that's where we start with it. But Paul is asking us to say, as believers, are you lording over your strong faith over those who have weak faith? Are you lording your liberty? Are you rubbing your liberty in the nose of those who are not practicing liberty because of their convictions? Jesus sits them down and reveals that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And He provided their example. Paul's argument in Romans takes this principle. If the Son of God had this attitude, who are you to lord it over the weaker in faith? Remember, Paul is reminding us through chapter 14 that we should have the mind of Christ, that we should have the mind of Christ, that we should be united in the mind of Christ, united in thinking as Christ thinks. All the way through chapter 14, we've been building on that theme. We come to the end of chapter 14, and he establishes it firmly for us. And then he jumps right into 15, and he reminds us, hey, by the way, you're supposed to live like Christ thinks. You're supposed to think as Christ thinks. Paul goes on to quote six, Psalm 69.9 as evidence of what he is instructing. And Christ changed this passage to himself in the Gospels, and Paul uses the, the change that Christ made. By the way, um, is it okay for Christ to change what's said in the Old Testament? Yes. Because he is God, right? So if in the context of Psalm 69, we have David. he's David is grieving over the house of, of God. He wants to build the house of God. And in Psalm 69, he is saying, all the reproaches of those around have, that are pointed to the Lord are pointed to me. And Christ says, by the way, that's a picture of myself. Is that okay for Christ to do that? Absolutely. Is it okay for you to do that? Absolutely not. You cannot do that. And so Christ takes this, and he uses it in reference to himself, saying that he is bearing the reproaches of those who reproached God, and they fell on Christ. So that is how Christ has changed it in the Gospels, and Paul takes that here from Psalm 69.9, and he reveals, reveals what it is that Christ does. But Charles Spurgeon says of this portion, even back in Psalm 69.9, He says, the great mediator was in this respect a substitute for God as well as for man. He bore the reproaches aimed at the one as well as the sins committed by the other. In other words, he was the mediator. All that Jesus is using this passage of, and Paul is using this passage of, is that Christ is the mediator. And Paul says, if Christ was a mediator, and you are to think like Christ, ought you not be a mediator as well? The stronger believer stands in the gap for the sake of the weaker. We can do no less than to surrender our liberty for a time to build up another. It is done for you on a scale in which you are unable to fulfill by our great mediator. However, we restrict ourselves in our liberty because of the example of Christ. You can't bring a sinner to a saint. Christ did. You can't stand in the gap for sin, but you can stand in the gap for a weaker believer. Growing in Christ to become a stronger believer in Christ. But Paul brings this down and he's wrapping us to the Word of God. He's pulling us to the Word of God and he reminds us of the encouragement and the perseverance. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for your instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul now says, okay, I want you to be the mediator stronger in faith. He says, how are you going to do that? How is this going to be lived out? Well, we must have encouragement and perseverance. And Paul reminds them where they've been, reminds them what's going on in their culture. Remember the struggle that we talked about of the weaker believer in Paul's day in Rome. These are the ones who have been uh, whether they were former Judaizers themselves or have been impacted by the Judaizers, they are the ones who have grown up under the law of Moses. And in growing up under the law of Moses, they have uh, brought to themselves a law in food, a law in their dietary needs, as well as a law in relationship to special days. The natural tendency of humanity... Is to be reactive, right? Uh, Here's where the Judaizers were. We don't want to be Judaizers, and so we're going to go over here. What Paul is reminding the Roman believers is in relationship to the weaker brother, who are uh, those who by conviction hold to the special days, are those who by conviction have special dietary laws, that those by conviction observe special, certain festivals and feasts, Paul says, first, don't be reactive to them. Don't go too far. Remember them and remember Christian liberty. The natural tendency is to go the opposite way, but Paul, speaking to the stronger believer, reminds them that the Word of God, is, spe- and specifically the Old Testament, was written for our instruction as well. Notice what he says here in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Who's Paul talking to? He started out, verse 1, talking to the stronger believer, right? Has he changed that? No, he's still talking to the stronger believer. As he's talking to the stronger believer, they're looking at the weaker believer and saying, you know what, I recognize my Christian liberties. I don't want to live that way, and I'm going to go over here. And going over here, they go too far, and they remove the Word of God. And Paul says, wait a minute, you cannot cast out the whole Old Testament. You can't cast out the written Word of God. And so he reminds them of the purpose of the Word of God. And he says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions. That's an amazing statement. Because is Paul living under the law? No. Paul has spent the majority of his ministry Uh, confronting those who lived under the law. Consider the book of Galatians. He's saying the law was our tutor. He's saying we no longer live under the law. But he also remains consistent in pointing back to the Old Testament and saying there are things for us here. What is the instruction that we find back here? And he says this, "So so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul says there's tremendous value to the Old Testament. There's a current movement in the world today, in, a, in the Christian community today, that only looks at the New Testament. And then if they look at the Old Testament, it is through the lenses of the New Testament. Can we read it that way? No. We have to start in the Old Testament. We have to understand what God is doing, working through His people, bringing us up to this point, recognizing He is keeping His promises of Genesis chapter 12 and moving through this gap in Daniel chapter 9. And we live in this gap, the age of grace, the dispensation of grace. Paul is reminding us that the word of God is unique. Not only did it serve the needs of the dispensation before us, but it is relevant to us in this present dispensation. By the way, we're in the same dispensation Paul was. This is the incredible truth behind Paul's instruction to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he said all scripture is given by God and it is profitable for reproof. For correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, verse seventeen, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know what the scriptures were that Timothy had? The Old Testament and the letters Paul had written. That was just about it at the time. And yet, God or Paul reminds young Timothy to go back to the pages of the Old Testament, where we find the examples of perseverance and encouragement that provide the hope of the Christian in this age. Is that difficult? Let me ask this. Is Paul asking us to find perseverance, to find encouragement in the Old Testament by ourselves? Is this the work that you do? Look at the next verse, verse 5. There's a gift here. There's a gift that has been given to us. Verse 5 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Paul says, no, it's not all your work. You're not being called to pull yourself out. And it's almost stunningly uh, that the Christian is not called to pull themselves to this ideal of encouragement and perseverance. It is a gift from God. He is the one who gives it. The examples of Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Jacob, David, Hannah, Rahab, And on and on and on give clear evidence that it is the Lord who grants perseverance and it is the Lord who grants encouragement. And as we read through the Psalms, we watch as a man in desperation is transformed in nearly every chapter before the Psalm is over to a man of firm commitment and encouragement. Have you ever noticed that? You start reading the Psalm and it's almost a woe is me doesn't matter. You can pick just about any psalm. It's almost a woe is me. By the time you're done with that psalm, by the time you're done with that song, he is praising God and exalting God as King of kings and Lord of lords. You know why? Because it is the Lord who provides perseverance. It is the Lord who provides encouragement. And Paul says that that is what we have the privilege of demonstrating to one another. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, God gives perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. You're a demonstration of God doing that in your own hearts and lives. There are days where you're going to come in wore out and discouraged. You feel like you want to quit. You feel like, I'm not going to go on any further. And as a believer, you go to the Old Testament. You read the Word of God. You find the examples of Abraham you find the examples of David. You find the examples of these people of God that God has provided encouragement and perseverance to. By the time you are done watching what God is doing, then now you are able to fellowship with one another in like mind. What an amazing statement. Paul is not saying that we are under the law and, agree, and we would agree that we are not under the law. But the law of the Old Testament is indescribably important to the edification and the growth of the believer in this present age. Not for the same reason it was in the Old Testament. But for the reality that the law is a tutor. That we might learn Christ through it. It reminds us of our frailties. The law reminds us of our dependence. And it motivates our hearts to restrict our liberty to see others in Christ, to be edified, to grow beyond our weaknesses, and to allow Scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train for righteousness. At the end of verse 5, we are again confronted with unity. And Paul is not saying that we will all be convicted the same way. In fact, notice what he says here. He says, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. The reality is, you're going to have convictions that I don't hold. And I'm going to have convictions you don't hold. And likewise, everyone in this room is going to have a varying degree of convictions and liberty. But does that mean that there is no unity? I've been using the football illustration all day. Um, We're all football players designed to play the same position. No. I mean, how many times do you see, uh, an offensive lineman, uh, playing defensive end, and then at the same time, playing the, the cornerback? I think the other team's gonna win. There's this great big guy running down the field after this little tiny guy going to catch the ball. It's not gonna work, right? So we're all football players designed to play the same position. No. But why do we as Christians somehow think that we all have to have the same convictions? We're not all designed to play the same position. We're not all designed to do the same jobs. And so you can hold convictions and I can hold convictions so that we might fulfill what your God-given responsibility in the body of Christ is. And can we be unified? Is a team that is all the same unified? They're all the same, but they're not unified, right? A team that is diverse, a team that is different, can be unified. And they can be divided. We're being asked, we're being told, we're being commanded to be unified. Paul is saying that in regards to the strong and the weak, we recognize those areas in each other. And then we are to begin to think as Christ thinks. We began to grow in Christ. And in growing in Christ, we become united as one. One body. One fellowship. And he gets to the point. The point is, we are to be united in giving glory. Notice what he says here in verse 6. So that with one accord, you may with one voice... Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the point of Christian liberty? The point of Christian liberty is that the strong and the weak come together to glorify God in one accord, in one voice. Two times the word one is used. Do you think Paul is getting a point here? Paul is helping us understand that we are to have unity in giving glory. The unity that is found in Thanking is Christ, while diverse in convictions leads us to a chorus, a symphony of glorification which belongs only to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Diverse convictions find unity as each voice is added to the others in humble submission to each other and to the Lord and in humble submission to the mind of Christ. Your voice is added to my voice, which is added to everyone's voice. As we seek to glorify God. And all unity. All unite. In giving glory to God. What about Christ's example? Look there in verse 7. Therefore, accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us for the glory of God. What an amazing thing that Christ has done for you. It is indescribable. Paul has spent 11 chapters revealing the theology of your salvation. Paul has spent 11 chapters revealing the doctrine of what it was that Christ did and what He continues to do in your life and giving evidence of how we know we can have hope. And yet, did you deserve it? No. There are none who deserved it. The body of Christ is unique in that it is unified and yet diverse. Our example is Christ, accepting us in our frailties, accepting us in our weaknesses, accepting us in the condition we were in, in the filth, in the muck, and the mire of our sinful state, redeeming us and adding us to His body. He accepted us for the glory of God. And we ought to accept each other whether we are weak or whether we are strong, as we may be for the glory of God. The answer to the question, why should I restrict my Christian liberties, has three answers in this very short passage. But the greatest of them is that in unity with the body of Christ, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is glorified. There is no greater call for you than to glorify God. There is no greater demand. There is no greater purpose than for you to glorify God. And yet, we hold divisions among the body of believers. Is that bringing glory to God? And we bring it over the color of the carpet. And we bring it over the color of the pews. And we bring it over pews or chairs. We bring it over music styles. We bring it over all of these issues that are all Christian liberty issues. Are there theology issues that arise in a church? Absolutely. But as I shared earlier, do you know how many churches I know? Of all the churches I know that have split, guess how many of them have split because of theological reasons? One. All the rest split over liberty issues that is not healthy that is not giving glory to god our great god is glorified when we lay aside our christian liberty to bear the burdens of the weaker in faith he is glorified when the word of god in its entirety old testament new testament is used in the lives of his people to create perseverance and encouragement and he is glorified when we unite in a chorus in a symphony of praise as diverse as our convictions may be, but united in thinking as Christ thinks, to give glory to his name. And we do that by expressing a restricted liberty to those that we come in contact with. That may mean just temporarily. It may mean permanently in their presence. We can participate in Christian liberty. Paul says that all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Make sure that you are using all things as profitable. And if they are not profitable, you restrict their liberty. You restrict their usage to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. As as difficult as it can be to enact, as difficult as it can be to understand, I pray that you would cause us to recognize the unity that is found in the body of believers is... Absolutely incredible. As diverse as we are, different ethnic backgrounds, different convictions, different personalities, different positions in life, and yet you bring us all together in one voice for the purpose that in this symphony of voices ringing out, your name would be glorified. Lord, on our scale, in our local body, in our fellowship. May our voices unite together. May the unity that comes from this body be intense and immense. That your name would be glorified in every action, every deed, every word that is spoken. That the strong cover the weak. And when the strong become weak, that those who are strong at that point strengthen them that we become unified in our desire to give you glory. Lord, help us separate convictions from theology. Help us separate those things that uh, are are not issues of, of concern other than for us personally. Help us as well recognize that when it's an issue of liberty, that we willingly lay those aside for a time for those who are struggling with the convictions, that we all may be edified, that we all may be growing in Christ, and that your name be glorified above all. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. Change us, mold us, and make us who you want us to be as a local body. Encourage us as we get ready for compassion for people, that we would see each and every person we meet on the street, each and every person when we come across on the sidewalk or in our place of work or wherever it happens to be, that we see them as one destined for heaven or destined for hell. And may we make sure that we do everything in our abilities through your power, To reach every single one that is destined for hell. That they would hear at least hear the gospel. And we pray that your spirit would be about the work of of transforming hearts. That many would come to know you as Savior. And I praise you for what you're doing in this body. I praise you for uh, the newness of life. And the freshness of seeing new believers come to know you as Savior. And we exalt your name above all. In your son's name we pray. Amen.